interesting idea. Well, if you've uh, been with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been thinking about the message that Jesus spoke about most and first in his earthly ministry. And it's the message all about the kingdom, or as one gospel writer refers to it, or most of the gospel writers refer to it as the kingdom of God, or as one gospel writer refers to it, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, two phrases used somewhat interchangeably uh, in the gospels to speak about the kingdom. And in our teaching series so far, we've discovered that the kingdom is the spiritual realm over which God reigns as king. But we've discovered, too, that the kingdom is established wherever, whenever, and however God's will in heaven is done here on earth. We've discovered, haven't we, that in the week when Graham spoke, that the only way to be a citizen of the kingdom that Jesus speaks of is by entering into that kingdom through a relationship with God through Jesus, where we say, your will, not my way, be done. Jesus, I want your values over my values. Jesus, I want your priorities to be my priorities. So we discover that entering into the kingdom is a choice, but then we discover that God invites us on a daily basis to partner with him in the gospel, in mission and in ministry, and we either accept or we reject that invitation that we're given to daily live for him and with him. You remember those words from the first week where Jesus made an invitation. He said, look, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, turn through 180 degrees and believe. But then having accepted that message, Jesus challenges his followers that they also have another priority. And their priority is to adopt daily, moment by moment, to act in the will of God, to choose his priorities for our lives. Jesus prayed a prayer, didn't he, which uh, we've prayed lots in our week of prayer that we've just had. It was funny how this theme continued to come up, which is always encouraging when you're in the middle of a teaching series. We prayed often, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the echo of our hearts during our week of prayer. You see, whenever we pray for and we seek for the kingdom of God, we're essentially praying for an ever greater understanding and an ever greater experience of the reign and the rule and the presence of God in our lives. So we can say together this morning, look, the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality that we choose to enter into. But we can't just end there. We've got to go on to say that the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality we enter into, but also it's an experiential reality where we ought to be having an encounter with Jesus on a daily basis if we've accepted him as Lord and Savior. I had a great conversation with somebody this week, and we found ourselves talking in metaphors. And basically, we discern this, is that living by kingdom priorities is a slow cooker experience. I think the conversation was inspired by that thought that this is a a marinating teaching series where week by week, it becomes all the more flavorsome. And hey, that's true, isn't it, of a slow cooker? Somehow the food tastes all the more better. You see, kingdom priorities is not something that we can microwave in a moment, but it's something that we need to live out on the long haul in our journeys of discipleship in the slow cooker of our faith journey. And in the scripture reading that we get to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul is underlining all that I've just described, and he's brilliantly describing for us what the kingdom of God does not and does look like when it's lived out in the life of disciples in applied and practical ways. Now, what Paul is going to give us this morning is something of a a spiritual MOT, 
You can use this as a bit of a kind of compare and contrast text. As you hear it read to you, I'd love for you just to listen out and say, wow, is this describing my life? Is this describing my walk with Jesus, a spiritual MOT? And this morning, because I'm a good Baptist, I'm going to make Paul say three things. And the first thing he says is this, is we need to make up our heart and our mind. We need to make up our heart and our mind. But then secondly, he says, we need to put down our earthly desires. And then thirdly, he says, we need to wrap around Jesus's values. You like what I did there? Up, down, around. You see, in short, there's an invitation from our text this morning, and it's this. It's to to enter into and to live out a life transformed, or a life that's even more transformed in Christ, a life that's ever more and even more characterized by heavenly values which reflect the very character of Christ. That's the invitation for us this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Don't worry if you haven't. We're going to read it to you anyway. Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to keep coming back to the text, so do keep it open. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So as a first point of application, we discover from Paul that the king of the kingdom is interested in our hearts, but he's also interested in our minds. It's not an either-or reality. It's a both-and reality. Aristotle once said, apparently, educating your mind without educating your heart is no education at all. You see, we can fill our heads with all sorts of knowledge, but if it doesn't impact our hearts, then actually that knowledge arguably is worthless. We know, don't we, in life that our, 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 our heart and our mind work best when they're in harmony with each other. And Paul's point here is exactly the same. He's really keen for the church in Colossae to, to grasp exactly this same message. So he says to them, set your hearts on the things that are above. And then in the very next breath, almost without stopping, he says, set your minds on the things above as well. Both and, not either or. You see, Paul is really, really keen for followers of Jesus to understand that there's a correlation between the physical death and resurrection of Jesus and the outworking of that in our every single day, in our everyday lives. So he says in verse 3 that when we've come to faith in Christ, our old nature, our old self has been put to dead. Put to death. It's to be dead and, and buried. It's to be a distant memory. Just as Jesus physically died, so our old self also is to die. Isn't that just the most beautiful picture of baptism? As we enter into the water, we're putting to death our old life, and as we come up out of the water, we're symbolizing the reality that Jesus has achieved something amazing for us, that we can be born again and and live a new life. But it's not all about death and decay. In the same way that Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says we too are raised with him into a new life. It's through faith in Jesus that we died, and it's through faith that we are raised up into this new life that we can live with him. But I think there's something really crucial for us to understand here. Paul's purpose in saying all of this goes way way beyond simply trying to help us merely intellectually understand our new position in Christ. He's really, really keen that followers of Jesus understand at a heart level too how this new reality, this new identity should impact our lives. 
These aren't just lofty, kind of out there theological thoughts, but this is applied theology. Better than they even offer at Moreland's to Chloe, this is applied theology at its very best. You see, despite the fact that our hearts and minds often find themselves in conflict, I don't know if that's true of you, it's certainly true of me, Paul says, as best we can, we can surrender our heads and our hearts for the kingdom of God, and then we'll have at least half a chance of living in the light of that head and that heart understanding which has been surrendered to God. I really love the way the message version of the Bible puts it. It says, don't shuffle along with your eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things that are just in front of you. But look up, be alert to what's going on around you in Christ, because that's where the action is. And in a sense, I think that's the challenge Paul is giving to us. He's saying, look, take a look at your life, find out where Christ is doing something that he's at work, find out what God's will is in heaven here on earth, and pursue that, because that's where the action is. That's how you discover how to live the kingdom life. So he's making this call to the church in Colossae to set their hearts and to orientate their minds in the light of the ultimate rule, reign, and presence of Christ. In other words, to begin to see things from God's perspective, not just as mere spectators of the kingdom, but as active participants. Now, should we be really real for for just a moment? In our daily lives, it's really easy, isn't it, to get entangled in the worries and the stresses and the strains. It's so easy to get bogged down by our human ambitions and all of the concerns of this world. We were reminded of that, weren't we, last weekend when Lawrence so brilliantly opened up the parable of the sower for us. We heard the challenge to nurture the soil so that the good seed, and it's always a good seed of the gospel, so that when that falls, it's got a chance of growing. We heard the challenge last weekend to deal with the stones and the weeds and the thorns. And Paul's reminder today is of the need for us actually to lift our eyes beyond that which is just temporary and to focus as well on that which is eternal. Now, as we live in and around Christchurch, at first glance, it's very difficult, isn't it, to tell who the Christians are and who the Christians are not. I know there's a few notable exceptions to that, but most of the time, most Christians are kind of ordinary-looking men and women. But I rather have the sense that if we as followers of Christ are to follow Paul's instructions here with our head and with our hearts, then it ought to be possible to discover who the Christians are in Christchurch and who they are not. Why? Because the Christians will be the ones wandering around looking upwards. Now, not physically, of course, because that would be ridiculous. We'd be bumping into lampposts and everything else. But spiritually, that sense that our lives will be orientated towards and around the things of God. You see, Paul's point in the text here is that Christians have this kind of extra dimension to life, which is what he's speaking of. He says it's a life, verse 3, that's hidden with Christ. He says, you have this hidden resource, an invisible reality that the world cannot see and does not have. But when you're in Christ, you have it. Now, the hidden resource, of course, is the very presence of Christ himself, who isn't in some kind of far-off, removed uh, place in the outer spaces, but actually, get your head around this thought, when you've come to faith in Christ, is living within the hearts of those of us who know him and love him. What an amazing reality that the day you trust Jesus, or you did trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he planted the seed of his spirit within you, and he delights in growing that seed uh, and helping it flourish. You see, Paul is saying to us in our text today that Christians have a a withness or 
better than that, a withinness of Jesus about us. So he's saying, verse 1, set your hearts on this hidden resource. Verse 2, he says, set your mind on this hidden resource. In other words, would you allow Christ into your affections? Would you allow Jesus into your emotions? Would you allow Jesus into your desires? Would you allow Jesus to be interested in your thinking? Would you allow Jesus to be in, in your dreaming? Would you allow Jesus to be part of your will and the choices that you're making? In other words, allow Jesus even into the very deepest parts of you, even those parts that we thought we can hide from God, which of course we can't. Allow Christ into your everything. You see, when we actively pursue and seek to live out the kingdom, we'll be saying to Jesus, Jesus, I want your wisdom to be my wisdom. Lord, I want your knowledge to be my knowledge. I want your will to be my will, your priority to be my priority. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all of these other things fall into their proper place. So maybe if we were to summarize these opening two verses at least, Paul would say, invite Christ into the things within, and don't shut him out. That's the secret of a life that is being lived to its fullest. That's the secret of a life that's being lived abundantly. So first Paul says, make up or set above your heart and your mind. And then he goes on to say, and put down earthly desires. Well, now's the moment to brace yourselves. And if you've got a small child in here, I notice one of mine in here has blocked their ears. Because what Paul has to say actually is pretty raw and it's fantastically challenging. Now, what I want to encourage us to do this morning is I'm about to read this next chunk of Scripture to us, is be ready to feel some conviction from God. Not condemnation, because it's, it's different. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But as I read verses 5 to 10, I just want you to be aware this morning of the response of your head and your heart. I wonder if there are particular words or phrases as I read them that make you feel that sense of conviction before God, a, a Holy Spirit poking the ribs, we might refer to it as. That's something that just needs to change because in the hearing of Scripture, we have this awareness. Verse 5 goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, past tense, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on this new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Now, one of the things we've discovered in this teaching series so far is when you talk about the kingdom, it can feel a bit abstract. It's kind of just a bit out there. It's a very difficult concept to try and get your heads around. By now, you would have discovered that neither Lawrence, myself, or Graham, as we've spoken week by week, have even gotten close in our preaching to firmly nailing down a definition of the kingdom so that everyone can go, aha, I finally get it. He's finally made some sense. Well, I want you to prepare yourself for disappointment because we've got two weeks of this series left and we're unlikely to get there because we're never going to fully understand what it means to live out and experience the kingdom of God. Now, I'd say that. Duncan's preaching on the final Sunday, so there's half a chance. 
But in our defense, I do just want to say to us, if you haven't got it yet, actually that's okay. Because even when Jesus described the kingdom to his disciples, it was really obvious, wasn't it, that they got it and they didn't got it all at the same time. And I think this is where Paul's teaching to the church in Colossae is so helpful because it gets down to the nitty-gritty. It talks about the practical rather than just abstract theological thoughts. And the challenge for us today is to apply this theology because all good theology is applied to our lives. And Paul helps us understand what the kingdom of God looks like by first telling us what it shouldn't look like. He says to authentically live the Christian life or the kingdom life and not just play at games of being a Christian, it means firstly getting undressed, but then secondly it means getting redressed. He says we need to engage in this daily uh, choice of putting off and putting on, which um, involves this kind of continual process of surrender and transformation, an ongoing sense and an evolving sense of giving attention to all that we can be in Christ. Now, as you flick through the Scriptures, what you discover is throughout the New Testament, this is a consistent message, the put-off and the put-on message. And as it is in the physical, it so often is in the spiritual. So unless you want to look like me a moment ago, like Michelin Man, as I was putting all these layers on, what we know is that in order to put something on, we have to first put something off. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if I say to one of my kids who's been out in the garden and they've been making mud pies, go upstairs and put some clean clothes on, they somehow seem to know that in order to fulfill that request, they have to first take off their dirty clothes before putting on their clean clothes. Go upstairs and put some clean clothes on. I don't have to say to them, go upstairs, take off your dirty clothes, and then put on the clean clothes before you come back down again. Children seem to instinctively know not to put clean clothes over dirty clothes. Well, mine do. I can't account for yours. (laughs) And in a sense, that's what Paul is saying to these Christians in our text. He's saying, would you please not cover up your filthy rags with the beautiful clothes that God wants to dress you in? Now, without exception, every single one of us will have formed habits that are bad in our lives, sometimes without even knowing that they're wrong. All of us will have allowed at some point, at some level, to allow our attitudes and our actions to be destructive, if not to our own lives, certainly to the lives of somebody else. So in the plainest and some of the most explicit language, I think, that's captured in the Scriptures, Paul says, these are the things that you must put off if your new clothes, your royal robes, are not going to be spoiled. Now, I'm sure what you notice is that the first five uh, of the list of those old issues that Paul starts with are to do with sexual desires. And then he goes on to list another six. Now, sadly, this morning, I don't have time to unpack each of them one by one this morning. If we had more time, we'd have a show of hands to show who's wrestling with each issue, and then we'd pray for each other, and and then we'd move on. Maybe we'll do that another day. But in brief, what Paul says here is, put to death that that belongs to your old life. He says we need to undress from those filthy, dirty rags, and we need to redress with our Christ-honoring clothes, not just because it's a good thing to do because it will make us look good, but actually because there's a much bigger spiritual issue at stake. Did you see verse 6? He speaks about the wrath of God. He says, we have a holy God, and our sin disappoints that holy God. He's saying here there are consequences for human sin in the economy of a holy God. 
Now, what's become so common today, and actually this was a problem in, in the first century as well, which is why Paul is speaking about it, that even Christians sometimes can convince ourselves that it's acceptable to engage in habits and behaviors that should have been part of our old life, to just overlook uh, the sins that we might be engaged in. Now, I know we don't really like to hear this kind of thing, but it is right here in the Scriptures in verse 6, we cannot ignore those old behaviors. Why? Because verse 6, because of these things, these wrong behaviors, the wrath of God is coming. Now, many people will think of the wrath of God as being this kind of divine temper tantrum where God gets out of control and he gets really angry and he vindictively strikes you down with a lightning bolt from heaven or, or whatever. Actually, the wrath of God was satisfied when his son died and rose again. Do you know that God loves you so much this morning that he doesn't want to treat you like a divine temper tantrum, but actually he wants to say to you, your sin is serious and I have dealt with the seriousness of your sin through the death of my perfect son on the cross. I gave you the best thing I had to give you. So as you hear this verse, would you know that the wrath of God has been satisfied because of Jesus? And that's why entering into a relationship with God through Jesus is absolutely crucial. You see, the wrath of God is the perfect and just reaction to those sinful practices that Paul lists. And actually, we should expect nothing else from a holy God, because if God turned his back on moral absolutes and he ignored moral laws, then he would cease to be a holy God. Now, people like to say things like, well, what I do in my private life is nobody else's business. But I think Paul would begin to beg, beg to differ on that particular point. So he says as clearly as he can, look, because of the wrath of God, because God is holy and he can't bear sin, in Christ the old should be gone and the new should come to replace it. So he goes on to say, verse 7, you used to walk past tense in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now in Christ no more. I invite you to get undressed from your filthy rags so that you don't spoil your new image and your new clothes. In Christ, you have this new resource, this new power. You have a strong Savior who promises to be with you in every single moment of temptation. And if we truly surrender ourselves to him, he gives us the strength to say no. So firstly, we have to make up or set above our hearts and our minds. Secondly, we have to put down earthly desires and then finally, the challenge is to wrap around Christ's values. So we've just discovered in verses 5 to 10 how not to live out the kingdom. So what does living out the kingdom of God look like? Well, as we're about to hear, Paul says, look, there are certain virtues to cultivate, like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, unity, thankfulness. But will you notice with me, before he gets to that, he says, first, there is an identity to embrace. Those values matter, but first there is an identity to embrace. Verse 12, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. 
with all wisdom through the psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I wonder if you spotted your identity if you've come to faith in Christ. Do you know what your identity could be if you choose today to come to faith in Christ? Paul says this so clearly right at the beginning, doesn't he? He says, we are chosen, we are holy, and we are dearly loved. I wonder if some of us need to hear that this morning. If you've come to faith in Christ, you are chosen, you are holy, you are dearly loved. Now, already I can sense some of us are saying, yeah, that's true for all the people sat around me, and that's true for you, Chris, but it is not true for me. God's Word says to you this morning, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are chosen. God has chosen you to be in His family. He's adopted you into His family. God says to you this morning, because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, no matter how much of a shipwreck your life might be today, you are holy because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has made you holy in the sight of a holy God. Jesus says to you today that you are dearly loved. You know, I need to know that I'm dearly loved by God this morning. I wonder if you do. You see, I think Paul's point to the church in Colossae is that unless we know this truth and unless we claim this truth with our hearts, then actually we haven't got a chance of living out the Christ-like values that he speaks of. You see, this knowledge is the very basis for everything that Paul goes on to say. And I think it's absolutely no mistake that Paul makes this statement about identity before he goes on to tell us how we should behave and how we should live. It's really important to discover who we are because by discovering who we are, that then influences the way that we live and the way that we behave. Our sense of identity, if you like, is the compass that guides our behaviors and shapes the course of our actions. Our sense of identity is that which shapes our habits and our thoughts and our actions. If we know who we are in Christ, if we know that we've been chosen by God as his children, if we know that Jesus has made us holy, even though sometimes our lives don't look like that, and if, so, if we know that we're dearly loved, then actually that surely has to influence our behaviors because that becomes the compass by which we set our direction. And Paul is saying here, look, as God's chosen people, we need to daily put on these qualities that reflect the very nature of Jesus. Did you notice that in verses 12 through to 15, that each of those qualities that's listed is a description of Jesus? He was compassionate. He was kind. He was humble. He was gentle. He was patient, forgiving, loving. He was peaceful. Who doesn't want to be more like that in life? I do. So Paul says, look, if that's your desire, if you want to be more like Jesus, Jesus, then when you get up, we need to put on these qualities of grace. We need to put on these clothes. After we've dealt with our filthy rags, let's put on these beautiful clothes that Jesus is able to give to us. And you see, the thing is, we cannot put on these clothes if we seek to do it in our own strength. But we have the God of the universe who is living within our hearts by his Spirit. And the Holy Spirit just loves to nurture the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to grow that fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. But the Holy Spirit also loves to give us the gifts of His Spirit so that actually we can live for Him and we can glorify Him, even as fallen and broken human beings. You are a new man, you are a new woman in Christ. Therefore, Paul says, begin to live that way. 
But if you're going to live that way, then you first need to know your identity in Christ. And as I finish, I want us just to dwell on that for just a moment. I want us to dwell on our identity in Christ. You see, this morning there's an invitation for us to recognize who we already are or who we can be if we've accepted or we will accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. God says to you and he says to me today, you are chosen. God chose you. He says to us today that because of Jesus, you're holy. Your sin can be forgiven because Jesus has paid the price. He says to us this morning that you are dearly loved. Can I invite you this morning to own that truth? Not for me, not for the people sat around you, but to own it for yourself and to claim it with your head and allow that, allow that knowledge to drop the 12 inches into your heart as well. Because when our head and our heart find themselves in sync on this theme and with this knowledge of this identity that we're chosen holy and we're dearly loved, then we can go on to live a life that looks transformed and looks even more like our saviour Jesus in the sure and the certain knowledge that his work on the cross is finished and it's done for us. So when we muck up and we screw up, which we will, his grace is still sufficient for us to stand up and walk on again. What a God, what an invitation that we have before us. I wonder if we can be still for a moment and pray. really have a strong sense this morning that there are some of us who have wrestled with this identity but never fully claimed it. Maybe for some of us this morning, we actually feel that we're unlovable, that we're not worthy of our Heavenly Father declaring these things over us. Maybe even this morning as we read through that list of how not to live in verses 5 to 10, you've sensed that conviction this morning before God that something's not right. Would you know this morning that that is conviction, it's not condemnation, and therefore you can continue to stand if you'll simply accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers you today. Lord, thank you that you declare over us today, if we're in Christ Jesus, then we are loved. Dearly loved. And Lord, as we find ourselves at this tipping point today, as we head towards the end of this teaching series over the next couple of weeks, as we've sought to wrestle with what it means to be a people who live out the kingdom, Lord, we pray that you would equip us and you would resource us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to move afresh in our midst. To do a great work in our heads, but to do a great work in our hearts as well. Jesus, we honor your reign, we honor your rule, and we welcome your presence.
would you continue the good work that you've done in us? And Lord, for those of us who this morning felt that Holy Spirit in the ribs, Lord, give us the courage to face up to the temptation that we maybe so easily cave into. And Lord, give us the courage to say to you, would you be Lord over this situation? Help us to say no. And to instead say, your kingdom come. Your will in heaven be done here on earth. Your values, your priorities. Would those things be done in our lives? We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you about the life of a church minister. There are tough times and there are incredibly joy-bringing times. And this week has been a tough week that's been punctuated with such good news. And I want to, uh, Carol, let's give Carol a big warm welcome. Come and join me because, come on, louder, harder, faster. I've got it here, Carol. Sorry, first service, we had to send Carol off to go and get her own microphone. Um, Carol, this week, you've, you've been one of my joy-bringing conversations, so thank, thank you for that. Don't do those R noises. It, it, makes me, it makes me well up. Um, Carol, I had a conversation with you this week, which was so encouraging in the middle of what had been and has been a very difficult week. And Carol, we had a conversation about something that you've been wrestling with. And I said to you, Carol, would you be willing mm. to share something of your story with, me, uh, with us this morning so that we can see what it looks like to wrestle with something and to say, God, your will in heaven be done here on earth. And you've been doing that. Can you tell us something about the wrestle that you've been having and then maybe go on to tell us about what you've done about it? Where do I start? Um, Yes, well, uh, I've had conversations with Chris that haven't been so happy um, about <laughs> about baptism. And I had a, a big um, barrier between me and getting baptised. Chris very wisely left me to it and let God do the rest of it. <laughs> and um, because I'm retired, I'm have the luxury of having a quiet time in the morning with God. And it's during these times that um, a few times I've felt that nudge in the ribs <laughs> um, about being baptised. And I rejected it. Well, you know, said, oh, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> he said, yeah, come on. Um, so eventually, um, a few weeks ago, I said yes, uh, and i um delighted that I am actually going to be baptised. can't believe I'm saying it, but I am <laughs> delighted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the last few months have been um, challenging. <laughs> um, and I am where I am, not because of me, but because of him. Amen, amen. And we sang that song, didn't we? Uh, this is me paraphrasing. In the tough times, I'm a child of God. In the good times, so I'm good. a child of God. Amen. I'm sitting there saying, Amen. amen, amen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the challenge for us, and I, I, 
I really just sense this is a challenge for me, maybe for all of us today. And Carol, this is what you've done. You've taken one single step to be obedient to the call of God in your life. And from that single step, Carol, this is what's going to happen. You're going to continue to move on. I just think that's really exciting. Thank Um, you. You're one of the punctuations of joy into my week. The other punctuations have been two other people who have had exactly the same conversation with me. And God is stirring a little something. God is stirring in us the desire for his kingdom to come, to his will in heaven to be done here on earth. And Carol, we're going to be baptizing you on Easter Day. Great celebration. Uh, alongside one other person, and we're also going to have a baptism at church camp in the summer as well. We know about that for sure, so that's all really, really exciting. And I just want to encourage you this morning to maybe be challenged like Carol was challenged, to take one single step, and maybe it's baptism, maybe it's something else, but can I encourage you today to take the step, Um, because God always honors our obedience before him, Carol, and it's with great joy and excitement. We really look forward to seeing what he's going to do uh, as a consequence of your baptism. Yeah. Let's show our appreciation to Carol again. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. We're going to sing together. Uh, we're going to spend a few minutes responding. We're going to sing a song that just reminds us to begin with that God has given to us royal robes that we don't deserve. King of Kings, Majesty. A song that reminds us of the trees we've been thinking of today, but to an opportunity for us to respond and make a declaration back to our Saviour that we're going to live for Him. And then we've got a couple of other songs to respond to as well. So let's stand together, shall we, as we sing.
to that title because that's who you are. You are majestic. You are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords. You are the name that is above every other name. The name to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And King of Kings, we thank you that you make this invitation to us to willingly bow the knee in the here and now. And we choose to do it. Lord, like Carol, we in this moment just want to say to you, Holy Spirit, move amongst us that we would be brave enough to take that single step that maybe just enables us to step out of the prison.